Welcome to Co-op Energy Talk. I'm Rachel Johnson, the Member Relations Manager here at Cherryland Electric Cooperative. And as our longtime listeners know, our mission here at Cherryland is really pretty simple. We just want to provide reliable and affordable electricity to the member consumers that we serve. For us, what that means is that we have to match the amount of electricity that our members consume or want to buy with the amount of electricity that we have available to sell to them. We tend to see the highest demand for electricity in the summer when businesses and homeowners are running air conditioners on hot days and just a lot of things going on. And when that happens, we work closely with our regional grid operator, which is known as the Mid-Continent Independent System Operator, or MISO, to basically project the demand for electricity and the available supply and make sure that they match up. MISO does that work year round. And as we kind of come out of the spring into the summer, they start really projecting where we're going to be at this summer. That's why we were really concerned about a recent report from MISO that warned that Michigan and several other states in the region are potentially as much as 1,200 megawatts short of the power that we need to keep the lights on and importantly, the air conditioners on this summer. So uh, once we saw that report, we realized it was going to be really important to dig into it, kind of understand where that projection is coming from and what it means for our members and for Michigan. So I sat down recently with Cherryland's general manager, Tony Anderson, you all are very familiar with him, and also with the CEO of Wolverine Power Cooperative, Eric Baker, who has been a frequent guest on the podcast, so that we could discuss that report, but also really dig into the current state of Michigan's grid, whether or not we have the right projections in terms of the demand for electricity and whether or not we have the supply available to meet those demands. So listen in as Eric and Tony and I talk through not just the MISO report, but really the state of Michigan's grid. Well, I want to thank you both for making the time to sit down and talk about this today because it is a really important issue. This isn't the first time we've discussed concerns and challenges we see in Michigan's future as it pertains to having enough power available at the right time to meet the demand for electricity, especially during those really hot summer days. But we are sitting down today specifically because of a recent report by MISO where they warned that Michigan and several other states in their region are potentially as much as 1,200 megawatts short of the power we need this summer. So I, I was just hoping the two of you could help me unpack that for our listeners. And maybe, Eric, you can start by just explaining kind of in lay terms how MISO evaluates and projects future demand and generating capacity so that our listeners kind of understand the data behind this warning. Sure. Thanks, Rachel. And good morning. I, I think the first thing I'll I'll do is just explain MISO. MISO is a mid-continent independent system operator. It's one of two large independent transmission operators um, in our region. Most of Michigan is in the MISO footprint. And so when we talk about this as it pertains to Cherryland uh, members, this is really a MISO conversation. And MISO is a large operating and, and transmission coordinator that works out of Indianapolis. And it includes Michigan, Indiana, uh, Wisconsin, Minnesota, the Dakotas, and then all the way down, believe it or not, to the Gulf of Mexico. And so it's a really a large, a large footprint. And, and one of its jobs is to each year make an assessment of the different zones within this region. So it's split up into seven zones um, in the north. And how are those zones in terms of their capacity? So think of Think of capacity as the insurance policy. It's there to keep the lights on when we need it. Doesn't mean that all those resources will be used every day, and in most cases, they won't be. But when load is really high or the grid is really stressed under whatever circumstance, uh, typically very cold or very hot conditions, is there enough capacity somewhere 
in that region to keep the lights on. And so that's this, this, that's what's led to this whole discussion. And MISO does this every year. So it's just math. Just math. So, um, and, and maybe before we go into the next question, I thought it might be helpful to contextualize this for our members. 1,200 megawatts, just to kind of put that in perspective, Cherryland peaks at about 100 megawatts. So you're looking at 12 yeah. times the size of Cherryland's system, that there is a concern that we may not be able to meet that demand. So can can maybe bo- both of you talk about what's contributing to this shortfall? How, how did we get to this point where MISO is, is issuing this warning? Tony, do you want to maybe well, kick off first? Yeah, I'll jump in a little bit. Eric's obviously the expert in this, but it's, it's been a period of years where we've been retiring coal plants that are, are aged out. They, you know, they've used their useful life for the most part, but in some cases we're retiring them a little bit early as we transition to renewable energies like wind and solar, only we haven't built enough wind and solar with battery backup to replace the fossil fuel generation. So it's led to a math problem. Too much going off, not enough coming on. Eric puts a little more color on that. Yeah, Eric, can you give any any more insights into that piece? I mean, it I, it's interesting because it is a deceptively simple problem, right? We're not building enough things to replace the things we're getting rid of. But there's also a little complexity there because some of the things we're building aren't an exact match for the things that we're taking off the grid as well. Well, there's there's a lot of factors that are that are playing into this. I mean, we've got first of all is is as Tony said, we've we have a number of older generators that are retiring, and and in many circumstances, for many factors, whether it's economics or environmental footprint, a lot of those probably needed to to be retired. the The challenge that we've been talking about on this podcast, in particular, is the the least understood secret of these older units is they were workhorses and they kept the lights on for years and years and years, even though they were, they're, they're kind of like your, your, your trusted pickup truck that just runs and runs and runs. You, you don't want to drive across the country in it because it's not very efficient, but it's reliable. It's simple. And, and, and it always runs when you need it. And what we're doing one by one by one is taking away these old workhorses that, kept the lights on. And so each time we do that, we have a little bit, a little bit less stretch in our rubber band and it makes the grid just a little bit less resilient. So if you take off one, no big deal, take off two, no big deal. But now when you, you, you get rid of 50, 60, 70 of these around the upper Midwest, now our grid is starting to feel the strain of that, that we don't have as many of these workhorses available to us uh, when we need them. The second bit of this is that for the last decade, we've enjoyed a lot of the benefit of energy optimization programs and energy efficiency measures, particularly in lighting and air conditioning. Uh, we have The industry has supported or been a part of this renaissance of LED lighting that is, has really kept load growth in check for a long, long time. But as the benefits of that begin to slow down, what's happening is we're actually seeing energy and, and load increase for the first time in, in some cases, almost a decade and a half, where we really haven't seen a lot of load growth. All utilities in the upper Midwest are, are realizing there's more load growth. We're plugging in more devices at home. Now we're beginning to plug in some electric vehicles. We're, we're using more electric heating systems and energy sales are actually going up for the first time in well over a decade. 
Yeah, and I, I appreciate, Eric, that you talked about kind of both sides of the equation, right? So we have, if, you, if the equation is add up all the things you use to generate electricity and hope it is equal or greater to, to all the things using electricity, right? On mm -hmm. the all the things using electricity side, not only um, are, you know, devices today, but if you look forward over the next 10 years, they're really big plans to electrify a lot of things because we recognize that the cleanest path to a low carbon transportation sector is electrification, which is great, but we also have to be able to generate the electricity to serve it. So thank you for talking about kind of both sides of that equation. I, I wonder, yeah. and I don't want to I don't want to spend too much time in this next question because it, it can be a painful one, but I do think it's important that we acknowledge it. So what happens if this projected shortfall occurs? Let's say this July, it's really, really hot. We know that we're already maybe don't have the, both sides of our equation matched up well. What would our members expect in that situation? And, and, and maybe, Eric, you can kind of talk at the grid level. And Tony, you can kind of talk more specific to Cherryland if you want to kick that off, Eric. Yeah, as, as, a, as a career utility planner, this is the subject I like talking about the least um, because we've worked so hard for decades in our industry to make sure that this never happens. And we, we put plans in place as sort of our, our 10th and 11th level backup plan. And now what's happening is, is entities like MISO are starting to predict this potential backup plan that used to be way down our list is becoming more and more likely to occur in the coming years in front of us. And that's really unsettling to us in the utility side of things because we've, we've really never experienced this in any meaningful way. And we saw the, the negative implications of this in Texas a year ago and how damaging that was to not only human life, but economically to customers and to utilities. And we really don't want to see that happen. So here's how it works as a backup plan. Think of this region in MISO as broken up into sub-regions and each sub-region has what's called a balancing authority. And its job is to be sort of the last zone of defense traffic cop for the grid that makes sure that we have enough generation in that zone with both internal generators that are running and imports that are coming into that zone matching that up to load. Because in all cases, we have to make sure we can balance supply and, and demand instantaneously on our grid or really bad things happen. The last, one of the last lines of defense is to protect the grid from collapse, we, we shed load. It's a draconian measure. The measure of shedding load is, worse, is less worse than the alternative, which is low frequency and brownouts. And so the balancing authority will call all the load serving entities in that region and say, you have to shed load by X percent. And the frustration for us is even if we have enough generation, we all have to do our part. So even if we're Wolverine is net exporting 100 megawatts of generation off of our units, we will still be told shed 10%. And so we'll go to all our customers, Cherryland included, and say, you have to shed X percent of load right now. And we'll have that all planned out in advance. Well, our operators know exactly where that load goes first and we shed load and then we start rotating that around our system. Mm -hmm. And that's, that'd be a really sad day. For a lot of, a lot of people, Tony, anything to add to that? Just that, yeah, that, that's how it's going to happen. We're, we'll get called and It'll probably be voluntary at the start to see if we can get enough voluntary reductions to get to our 10%. 
but then after that, we'll, we'll just have to go down uh, big customers, rural feeders, you know, the, the least affected feeders and do the math until it adds up. And hopefully it would only be for a couple hours, but there's no guarantee that it won't be four or five or six or longer. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, and certainly we have plans in place to communicate that in that situation, but it won't change the basic dynamic that um, when we talk about load shedding, what we're really talking about is, is rolling blackouts, right? Controlled blackouts in order to avoid uncontrolled blackouts. And that will, there is a point at which that's no longer voluntary. So we can, we can make public calls, but if if the if the two sides of the equation aren't matching up, we will bring down the demand side of the equation because we don't have the ability to bump up the supply side yeah. of the equation, basically. Yeah. And I think I it's think really important, important to make clear what, what Eric was saying. Wolverine has built enough generation, has purchased enough generation. All of the Cherryland system has enough generation to run. We're just connected to a bigger grid that we don't have the ability to disconnect from that grid. So even though we've done our job and built our generation and have our supply, we have to share it with the entire grid. Mm -hmm. And that means we have to shut off regardless of how well we've done our job the last 30 years. Uh, we're part of a bigger, a bigger entity and it's unfortunate. Yeah. Eric, did you have something else you were going to say too? Yeah, I, th I think to, to add to Tony's point, which is an excellent point, is, is all utilities in Michigan will be faced with this. There is, there's, it won't be uh, consumers, customers have to shed load and co-op customers don't or municipal customers, Traverse City Light and Power um, is exempted. Everyone will have to do their pro rata part in this no matter who your electric provider is, we're all in this together. Mm -hmm. So essentially in this situation, MISO is utility agnostic. It is just simply at the, at the, at the big G grid level, we're going to shed load and we're going to spread it across all of this particular region that's impacted. That's correct. Okay. So we've talked a little bit about what the problem is and what would happen in that kind of, you know, worst case scenario. But can we now just dig into like, what are the potential solutions that we can use to correct it when we look long-term and, you know, how, how do we not be having the same podcast next year and the year after that and the year after that? So, and I think there's probably a lot we can, we can talk about in that area, but maybe Eric, you can kick us off by talking about some of the things you think that, that Michigan and MISO should be doing now to help correct this problem. Well, I liked your question up until the now point, because a lot of my answers are going to need a little bit more time than now. Um, in fact, I'll, I'll, I'll give you that as one of the three T's that one of my colleagues uses. And and I, I really think it's it's true that the, the answers to this problem are the three T's being uh, technology, transmission and time. Um I think technologically, the grid nationwide is, is going to undergo an amount of strain that it has never seen before, not in the last really 100 years since the, the electric grid was developed in the nation. Um, and because of that, I think technology will come out of the woodwork in ways that will be beneficial to this over the long term. It's not going to happen in Tony's in my career, but I think 10 to 20 years from now, we will have to have alternative forms of energy storage devices that don't exist today because we can't we can't rely more and more on intermittent resources and keep power on all the time without some better technology of storage and that technology simply does not exist today it does not exist no matter what you read on your favorite your your favorite um 
electronic platform, this technology does not exist today to adequately store energy. So that's the technology bit. I also think we'll have much more of an interconnected grid of things or internet of things in terms of home control and devices and electric car chargers kind of all coordinating with one another over time. But again, I think that's a decade out, not, I don't think that's months away. In terms of transmission, well, Michigan is already reliant on imports from other states to keep the lights on most of the time. And so broadening that grid and finding alternative ways to interconnect with other regions, I think will be important for Michigan's energy policy long-term. One of the proposals Wolverine has put forward is, is to evaluate interconnecting um, two points along Lake Michigan, one around Grand Haven and one around Ludington, where there's already strong transmission in the state, and, and interconnecting those to Wisconsin, <laughs> where we can integrate upper Midwest generation and diversity, particularly their wind generation with, with Michigan load and Michigan's pump storage. Um, that's, a, that's an important project long-term. I, I, again, that's probably a decade away. And so all of this is around time. The one thing that's within our power is to not be, to not make rash decisions around the remaining fossil fuel assets we have. I think we can accommodate a strong transition to decarbonization and still keep the lights on. And right now, I think we're on a mutually exclusive path. The faster we run to dis- to retire our remaining fossil assets in Michigan, the more likely it is that we'll we'll face blackouts, unfortunately. And, and Tony, I know you've written a lot about this, so I want to get your thoughts on it. But I think, Eric, the, something that's really important to 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 make very clear to say that we should keep remaining fossil fuel generation operating isn't isn't running around advocating we should be building new new coal plants for example and helping i think the public to understand to say something we have today should be operating is not the same as saying let's go build a bunch of of new ones um it just when you said that, it kind of hit me that, yeah, like let's, it's, a, it's a time thing. And if we do believe that the realistically technologies are coming up that, that can help the, with this grid balancing work, let's give them the time to develop and then transition to those in a, in a reasonable manner. But Tony, you've talked so much about this in your columns to our membership. So we'd love to have you just kind of weigh in on what are our takeaways here about what we need to be doing now and into the, into the future to avoid blackouts. It's really simple. Eric's handled the next 10 years. They're on top of that. I'm hopeful all that happens. But right now, when you say right now, we just have to leave stuff on. We can't shut off nuclear. We can't shut off coal. I'm sorry. Um, But we got to leave it on or the lights are going to go out. It's it's that simple. Uh, Whose fault is that? Doesn't matter. It's the the mask says we have to leave it on or we're going to go dark. So let's keep out building everything else. Let's keep building solar and wind and yeah. working on storage. But we got to improve nuclear and we got to leave the old coal on until that stuff is done. And it's a five to 10 year process, as Eric talked about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And one of the things and, and Eric, I'm sure you can probably offer a little more detail on this. But one of the reasons that MISO is concerned is tied to uh, the, the Palisades uh, nuclear plant 
being decommissioned. And one of the things I find really interesting is now we're having this conversation, but it, it's it's retiring like this month. Well, the wrong time to decide you need to keep something on is when you haven't maintained it for a couple of years because you were pretty sure that you were going to replace it or, or retire it anyway. So I think a, while we, there might not be, uh, well, it, it is a, certainly a long-term problem. I think it's important when we start talking about things happening two or three years from now, we're really, really careful not to um, shoot ourselves in our two or three-year foot, right? And and certainly at some point in time in the, in the recent past, the decision was made to close Palisades, and now it's a little hard to reverse that decision. Yeah, I think that there, there's several things at, at, at play here. And, and there's one of them is just the, the modern reality of our grid is it's a lot more difficult to add new increments of generation now than it used to be. In one respect, it's more open and fair and that all ent- entities, not just utilities, can put projects into the into the MISO planning queue that says, I'd like to interconnect a new generator. Maybe it's a new solar project or a wind project. Um, But that process alone takes now two to four years. Um, It was less than less than two decades ago. Wolverine evaluated, planned, purchased and constructed and made operational a power plant in less than a 12 month window. (laughs) Now that same project would take us five to six years. So it's a lot more difficult to add new increments. Second is when you lose an increment of coal or nuclear in our grid now, you're taking an asset away that will never be replaced. Now, there are many environmental groups that will cheer and say exactly that's the point. Once it's gone, it's gone forever. Isn't that wonderful? And Tony's and my frustration is, that's okay if the grid is not compromised along the way. And when you take that away, you lose the ability to go backwards on that decision. And you, it creates an opportunity where if we have trouble when one of these plants like Palisades goes down, if the grid is strained because of that and we have blackouts, we're likely going to see that over the next three to six, seven to 10 years. And there's not anything we can realistically do about it. Yeah. And making that that third T in your three T's really the, one of the most important takeaways, which is we, we have to be realistic about timing and what what we what we can do, the amount of time it will take to do it and how that has. To, and then you kind of move yourself backwards from that when you start making some of these these other decisions. Um, the the. We've talked kind of about, you know, don't retire more plants until we have the technologies to replace them. Do that on a reasonable timeline. Um, we've talked about uh, building new generation sources in general and and hopefully the development of battery technology. I want to um, just push a little bit more on the on what we can do on the demand side, because you, you kind of hinted at that, Eric. But I think that's a place where Cherryland also will play a really important role and our relationship with our members will play an important role. So that demand side of the equation, what kinds of things do you both see in the future that might help us um, manage this balancing relationship on the demand side of, of the electric grid? Well, let me give you a couple of points uh, from Wolverine. One is um, one of the important things that that the Wolverine team did in, in conjunction with its members um, during COVID. It's, it's one of the few COVID successes I think that we can we can be proud of is 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 we completely read um, restructured our, our rates to our members that 
that give the members better price visibility as to what's happening in the market, and then create opportunities for our members to create transparent, but also flexible pricing structures as these new markets evolve. Because we see this coming that, that members may want the opportunity or a charger may want the opportunity to decide when that charger um, wants to wants to use energy and how you coordinate all that is going to be very complex. But the first thing is to make sure our members through its rate structures from Wolverine have the flexibility and latitude to uh, experiment with new programs that, that, that create this and to make it agnostic for us that says if, if a member can reduce load as opposed to Wolverine building an additional peaking plant, we want the, we want the exact same price signal to be at the customer level, because in some cases that is a really efficient way to do that and may, and a more cost effective way to do that. Yeah. And Tony, do you want to weigh in on that at, at the Cherryland side of things? Well, at, at the Cherryland side, we just have to be better utilizing those Wolverine rates mm-hmm. and what can we do with time of use? What can we do uh, on the demand saving side? And we have to be more aggressive. We haven't been aggressive for a long while because we've we've had enough power. But it's time for us to get aggressive in, in that area. And that, that time is now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think and in, in everybody talks about data now, right? Data is kind of the, the new cool cool kid term. But I do think there's an interesting opportunity because we do have tremendous amount of data about where and how electricity is being used. And and I don't know that we've fully embraced that data as a planning tool and then coming in with whether it's rate incentives or rebate incentives or punitive rates that help us change the way that dat- that load profile looks by analyzing the actual data on our system. So it's interesting to me because we're talking about like, you know, here are all these challenges and technology can be really disruptive and we're in this disruptive moment, but technology also can be incredibly constructive if you figure out how to use it well towards a shared goal. And the shared goal for everyone should be, let's keep the lights on. <laughs> so I, I, if we can get everyone to agree on that, then what are the, what are the technologies to do that? Um, so kind of as we wrap up our podcast, we've talked through some heavy stuff. Uh, certainly nobody wants to hear that we have reliability concerns for the summer, but I think as a co-op, we also have an obligation to be um, honest and transparent about that concern. But I would really, really love it if both of you could just take a, a minute, maybe leave us with a few positive thoughts on when you look at kind of the future of our industry and Michigan's electric cooperatives in particular, what gives you hope? Tony, you well, can go first. At, at Cherryland, it, our system is reliable. It, it's built strong. Wolverine system is reliable and built strong. I mean, we have the infrastructure to handle the energy. We just have to get the energy on our system at, at the right time. So I don't want people to think we aren't ready to handle whatever generation we need because we clearly are. But so that's, we're solid. Our infrastructure is solid. So what gives me hope is the collectively the nine co-ops in Michigan, we'll figure it out. We'll, we'll figure it out. We'll get creative with demand control and uh, coordinating our members and uh, the can do attitude of the co-ops. It, it makes me hopeful. Eric. I, I, I like that, the, the point that Tony made and to add on to that, you know, in addition to the significant investments that Cherryland has made on the distribution side and, and Wolverine has made on the transmission side, that puts us in a really good position to adapt. Whereas other utilities are not only trying to adapt to these changes, but they're also trying to 
play catch up on on their physical infrastructure, and that puts the co-ops in Michigan, in particular, in a better in a better fighting stance. Um, I'll say that Wolverine spends a lot of time and money that it is not compensated for on the grid, making sure that its generators are extremely reliable and available when the market needs them. And I'm I'm really proud to say that our 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 availability and reliability numbers are the best in MISO for our peaking fleet. And, and so that means that when MISO needs them, they're almost always available. And, and that helps reliability, not just for us, but in this, in this whole region. And when we're all connected to this reliability concern, I'm really proud of that. But I, I, I just can, I'd close with, with Tony's sentiments. Co-ops are really good problem solvers. We're, we're really experts in creative rural infrastructure. At the end of it, that's how we got our start. And, you know, we, we do what we do best. We get frustrated, we pout, we fight with each other, and then we roll up our sleeves and we figure out how to solve these problems. And if, if we're given just enough time, I know we'll solve this problem, even though I, there's, there's solutions that we're going to see be a part of this that, Tony and I won't see in our careers it, it, because things will have to change. The, but I think we're really good at embracing these technologies and, and adapting to change as market conditions uh, present that challenge to us. Yeah, thank thank you both for that. I think my my takeaway is in some ways, while we are certainly all in this together, we're a part of the grid and we are subject to the the whims of the grid to some extent. If I had to be in that boat, I'd like to be in that boat with a co-op because I think co-ops are agile. I think we're doers. Um, and I think we're so deeply connected to the communities we serve that it influences everything we do. And we've created that culture. And when you look forward to these challenges, I would rather be facing those challenges with a culture of let's get it done, do the right thing for the people we serve. And if we have to pivot, we pivot because that's what we do. So I, I, I do have a tremendous amount of hope, even knowing that it may not be a straight path to the future that we would like. So I want to thank both of you for taking the time to discuss this with us. I, I don't think this is the last time we're going to chat about reliability. As, as you pointed out, Eric, This there's not a right, we might have a right now problem, but there's certainly going to need to be some long-term planning for solutions. And I'm sure we'll have more opportunity to dig into those in future podcasts. But I just wanted to thank both of you for taking the time and let our listeners know that if you have any questions after the podcast, don't hesitate to reach out to us by leaving a comment on the blog, or you can email me directly, rjohnson at cherrylandelectric.coop. I won't answer your question, but I will get it to someone who can. So thank you both for taking the time. Thanks, Rachel. Thanks. I hope that you all enjoyed that discussion and learned a lot from it. Certainly, I think my key takeaway was just this is a really complex issue, but there's also a lot at stake in this. And it's really, really important that as um, both utility planners, but also as a state and as regulators, that we are we are really thinking about and prioritizing reliability when making both short-term decisions, but also really long-term decisions that impact the types of um, power-generating resources that we're building. This is not uh, something new. We've been talking about this for a while at Cherryland. Uh, but we are, you know, increasingly concerned based on reports like this, this recent report that we just discussed. So if you, as one of our listeners and one of our members are interested in working with us to advocate for policy solutions that help us keep the lights on for our members, which is our number one priority, please uh, check out voicesforcooperativepower.com and learn how you can help us make sure that the lights are on, not just this summer, but into the future as well. 